the world is a crazy place and the way it's organized is surely crazy, but we have to be crazy enough to see what that way is if we're really going to understand this physical world. It's not just a matter of nice, simple formulas. There's some ideas out there that are waiting to be discovered. I would put the question in its largest form this way. How come existence? How come that there is anything at all? And the black hole is a standing invitation to consider that issue. Because it says you've got something going to nothing. Well then, how do you get out of nothing something? Here we're skating at the frontiers between physics and philosophy. What philosophical idea will carry us through this new frontier of mystery that faces us now with renewed force? Renewed force because we study the evidence of the Big Bang ever more fully and we study the evidence of crunch to a black hole ever more in the cores of Milky Ways like ours. We have to be crazy enough to see what that way is if we're really going to understand this physical world. It's not just a matter of nice, simple formulas. There's some ideas out there that are waiting to be discovered. For Apologetics Profile and Good Heavens, I'm Daniel Ray, staff apologist with Watchman Fellowship and co-editor of The Story of the Cosmos, How the Heavens Declare the Glory of God. The gentleman you just heard was the late physicist Dr. John Archibald Wheeler, who first coined the term black hole in 1967. And it was the craziness of the implications of such an enigmatic cosmic entity that prevented many prominent scientists in the early and mid-20th century from pursuing the existence of black holes. So just what is a black hole? Well, we will leave that to Dr. Sarah Salviander to explain, our very special guest on this combined episode of Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile. Sarah was an atheist before becoming a Christian through her study of astrophysics. Her specialty is in the field of supermassive black holes.
This is an audio recording of a public presentation Sarah recently gave at Life Point Church in League City, Texas, as part of the church's Wednesday night apologetics ministry, Unfiltered Conversations That Matter. Thank you to Life Point for sharing with us the audio and video. You can also see this presentation on video, edited and produced by Watchman Fellowship. Be sure to check out the link to the video in the episode notes. Sarah's talk, God, Black Holes, and the End of the Universe, is taken from the same titled chapter in our book, The Story of the Cosmos. Sarah shares how she sees black holes' mystery, power, and enigmatic invisibility all reflecting God's invisible attributes and glory. So come and see how the wonders of our Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, are revealed in the things that He has made. As we begin, Sarah is introduced by LifePoint member Trevor Shakiba, who helped bring this event together. Let me introduce Sarah. She's a research scientist in the field of astrophysics. Research interests are quasars and supermassive black holes. Received her bachelor's in physics from Eastern Oregon University and a master's and PhD from, uh, in astrophysics as well from UT Austin. Um, this is what's interesting. She, as a lifelong atheist, Sarah became a theist as an undergraduate physics student when she came to believe that the universe was rather too elegantly organized to be an accident. And then as a doctoral student, she discovered the works of physicist and applied theologian Dr. Gerald Schrader, which convinced her of the reliability of the Bible and led, her, led to her conversion to Christianity. And then as, a, uh, as an aside from me, if you're on social media, Sarah is a top five Twitter follow. And that's actually how I got to know Sarah, um, just her interactions and the things she puts out um, and, and talking with different people from, from different faiths. It is very entertaining. So uh, I just say if you're out there, make sure you follow her. It's fantastic. Uh, her website's also fantastic. But if you would, help me welcome Dr. Sarah Salviander. Thank you so much. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? All right. So I was asked to give a bit of my testimony uh, before I launch into my talk here, and so I'll do the Sarah Salviander testimony in a nutshell here. Uh, so I was raised atheist in Canada, which is a pretty secular country, with um, just absolutely no exposure to religion at all. Both of my parents were ex-Catholic socialist hardcore agnostics they want me to say my dad really hates it when I say that he was an atheist he's a Christian now by the way yeah yay and my brother too and so you know I I grew up this way and my parents weren't particularly anti-theistic but somehow by the time I was 19 years old I was a hardcore anti-Christian person and I think part of it was just that general osmosis from living in a country that's anywhere from just passive about religion all the way to really hostile. And so um, at some point, uh, my dad especially became interested more in kind of libertarianism and introduced me and my brother to the philosophy of um, objectivism, the Ayn Rand philosophy, which I got to say as a teenager, it really appeals because it's all about being you know, rational self-interest and it's just like, okay, yeah, it's all about me, what I want to do. But, you know, it's very atheistic. And so this formed the basis of my worldview for a long time. 
uh, and for a young person, a long time is like seven years. So in my 20s, I decided to move back to the United States where actually I was born in Oregon, American by birth, grew up in Canada, came back to Oregon to go to university, get my degree in physics, and this was the point at which my atheism started to become unraveled. So in Canada, I think I met maybe two people who outwardly identified as Christians. I had no exposure to Christianity at all. But in Oregon, I was starting to meet actual sincere Christians, including two of my physics professors whom I admired very much and to discover that they were homeschooling Christians. And it was like, wow, okay. You know, because up to that point, I had thought that Christianity actually was something that made people kind of intellectually weak and foolish. It was like, what do you need this crutch for? But learning that these very intelligent professors that I admired were Christian kind of got me intrigued. And so gradually I kind of ratcheted down from being this hardcore anti-theist to being just like mm, kind of just this agnostic. And at, I think it was between my sophomore and my junior year, I got this research internship at UC San Diego at the Space Center there, working on cutting edge research in cosmology. We're trying to study these really deep space phenomena, quasars billions of light years away, trying to discover how much normal matter there is in the universe by studying their spectra. And I remember just thinking, you know, this is pretty wild stuff. This is way out of the center of mass kind of stuff you learn in school. Stuff that everybody's known for hundreds of years. Like this is stuff nobody's ever looked at before. And what amazed me is that the universe is ordered in such a way that we could actually answer these questions. You know, about things that happened billions of years ago billions of light years away from this tiny little chunk of rock that we live on. And it was like, something wants us to know this stuff. And I remember I was walking across that La Jolla campus, which if you've ever been there is absolutely beautiful. Walking across on this sunny day, I stopped dead in my tracks and I went, God, that's the most reasonable explanation. God created this universe and wants us to know about it. This is why it's intelligible. And I became a theist right on the spot. I mean, I had no idea I was headed in that direction. And so I kind of just stayed there for a few years, just sort of this general theist. There's a God. I don't know, really know anything about him. And then one day um, in the bookstore, I think I was a grad student by then at UT, I saw this book at Barnes & Noble, and the title, it said The Science of God. And it's this really cool book. It has a hand, and it's kind of got this atomic symbol around it. It's kind of eye-catching. I saw that, and I thought, well... I'm a scientist and I believe in God. Maybe I should see if the two go together. And this is the book by Dr. Schrader that Trevor mentioned, and it just blew me away. So he's uh, an Orthodox Jewish physicist, MIT-trained nuclear physicist, but also a theologian, I guess kind of a rabbi, translates directly from Hebrew, and he showed how I could take Genesis very seriously not allegorically, not as just a story, not as some kind of wild extrapolation, but to read it in a faithful way and to see how it melded with science. And I thought, oh my goodness, the, the God I believe in is the God of the Bible. And I went from there thinking just kind of briefly, does that mean I'm supposed to pursue, uh, pursue Judaism? But I really, well, there's a whole other Testament besides the Old Testament. And just by chance at that time, when I'm thinking about this, we met a pastor from a Lutheran church in Austin and I mentioned to him that I was 
kind of, you know, I was reading the Bible. I was kind of interested in this stuff. And he said, well, why don't you come and take some classes? I started reading the New Testament, read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, which is a wonderful book. And as a scientist, I looked at this. I had to go where the evidence leads. And I realized this is the God of the Bible. I also believe in Jesus Christ because the evidence was so solid for that. And I decided to become Christian. I got baptized in 2006. I was still a graduate student at that time. And at that point, I had been kind of on this trajectory to become a professor. I wanted to be a researcher, a professor in astrophysics. And gradually, my focus changed more to becoming an apologist, to defending Christianity and science as going together. And this is mostly what I've been working on. I stayed at UT after I got my PhD for nine years as a research scientist lecturing wherever anybody wanted me to come, at universities, at churches, talking about science and faith, and it has become more and more kind of my full-time job at this point. I quit UT in 2017 so that I could devote more time to doing this. I still work as a research scientist at a private institute, uh, which allows me to not have to publish on a schedule, but now this is mostly what I do. And then... uh, A couple of years ago, I met Dan Ray, who is one of the editors of this wonderful book that I'm going to promote to you. It's called The Story of the Cosmos, and asked if I would write a chapter for it. It's this wonderful book that combines science and philosophy and art to talk about basically Psalm 19, how the heavens declare the glory of God. And there's some great authors in here, including um, the Pope's astronomer and William Lane Craig, which is a name you'll recognize. Paul Gould is one of the other editors. And I wrote this chapter uh, about God and black holes, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. It's really just a synopsis of this chapter, which I really enjoyed writing for this book. And I encourage you, uh, if you're at all interested, to go on Amazon and buy it. And I can say this with no self-interest. I got paid a flat fee to write this. I don't get a nickel any time buys this book. I just think it's such a neat book that you really ought to get it. Okay, so let's launch into this talk. We've got the slide up here. Okay. God, Black Holes, and the End of the Universe. And I really had a good time writing this chapter. Okay, so when we talk about the end of the universe, people usually think, okay, when? When is that going to happen? But I'm telling you that it's a place and not a time. And in fact, there it is. Okay, does anybody recognize that thing in the night sky that's across there? Anyone want to blurt that out? The Milky Way, yeah. Absolutely beautiful in the constellation of Sagittarius, and Dan's a real expert of the night sky. We're talking like August, September is the best time to see that. The teapot. The teapot. Okay, so summertime, we've kind of missed the window on that, but it's absolutely beautiful if you can get to a dark place and see that. That is where the universe ends. Okay, do you want to see another here up close? Now, this is an artist's representation of what we think that end of the universe looks like. Anyone want to take a guess? I mean, you know the punchline already. It's a black hole. Okay, now again, I'll remind you, this is an artist's conception. We don't have any images like this of black holes, but just based on the physics, we're pretty sure this is what it looks like. Okay, and so what we're talking about here is a supermassive black hole about four million times the mass of the sun. And we'll get more into that in a bit. So. 
first, I kind of want to dispel some ideas here, you know, of what black holes really are. So when I was a kid, Disney's The Black Hole, this movie, some of you will remember this, scared me. It was it's like they, they're taking this spaceship and they're going to this black hole and they plunge into it. It was kind of terrifying. And people have this idea of black holes as being like these voracious cosmic vacuum cleaners that just suck up everything in the universe. Okay, and then here's uh, more of a contemporary depiction. This is from the movie Interstellar, which was more scientifically accurate than the Disney movie. Kip Thorne, who's considered the greatest living expert on general relativity, consulted on this movie, which made it a little more realistic. They didn't follow absolutely everything that he said, but uh, pretty close. And so this was another gigantic black hole. And so it was a little more scientifically faithful, but let's actually get into the science of black holes and what they are. And I'm sorry, not sorry, I'm going to inflict a little bit of college physics on you here. So what we have is I want you to imagine on the Earth that we have a really ridiculously tall mountain, so tall that it sticks up like this. And from this mountain, we're going to shoot some cannonballs out of a cannon. Now, anybody who's ever thrown a baseball or a football or anything like that you know that when you throw something, it kind of goes on an arc and then it hits the ground. The faster you throw it, the further it goes before it arcs down and hits the ground. Now, some pretty smart people, like I think Newton was one of these people who asked, what happens if you threw something so fast that it never hits the ground? Well, it would just keep going around the earth, okay? Like this, okay? And in fact, that's what the moon does and all these satellites that are orbiting the earth is that they're essentially just falling around the Earth and never hitting the ground because they're going fast enough. Okay, and now what you can see here is if it's going slowly enough, it'll just do kind of these elliptical orbits, these circular orbits. If it's going fast enough, it will be able to break free from the gravity of the Earth in either a parabolic or a hyperbolic orbit, and off it goes. So this gets into the whole question of how fast you have to throw something before it can escape the gravity of the Earth or whatever it's on. So uh, here's a little bit of math. And I'm sorry, I do enjoy inflicting math on people. So, but this is as bad as it gets. I'm not going to throw any more at you. So this is the formula for the escape velocity. Okay? And I have to look at it here. So square root of 2 times this constant called g times the mass of whatever the body is, let's say it's the Earth, divided by how far away you are from the center of that mass, okay? So for the Earth, this turns out to be 11 kilometers per second. Now that's pretty fast. And I've had students at this point ask, well, how does anything actually leave the Earth like a rocket if you have to go this fast? Now this is just the speed with which if you just had a major arm and you could throw something that would just have to be that velocity, it leaves the Earth. Now the reason that rockets can leave the Earth is because they have fuel cells on them that continuously burn and keep going, going, going. This would be a one-time application of force and off it goes. Okay, 11 kilometers per second. Now, what would happen if you took all of the mass of the Earth and scrunched it down to half the size? Turns out it would be harder to escape the velocity of the Earth, because now you're closer to that mass, it's more compact, 16 kilometers per second. Now let's further imagine that you could somehow double the mass of the Earth and scrunch it down to half its size. 
now it would take 22 kilometers per second in order to escape the gravity of the Earth. Okay, so here we are back at this equation. Let's just worry about these quantities here, just the mass and how close you are. And a very clever person named John Mitchell, who was a clergyman in the 18th century, he was also what was called a natural philosopher at the time, what we would call a scientist, thought, well, what would happen if the escape velocity of some body, let's think of a star maybe, was the speed of light? Now, as he's asking this, I don't think they had this idea back then that the speed of light was a cosmic speed limit. We know that from Einstein's relativity now. But he was just wondering, what would happen to the light from a star as it's trying to escape the star, and it's so massive and compact that the escape velocity is the speed of light? Well, the photons would never be able to escape, and this would become what he called, I like this term, it's kind of poetic, a dark star. Okay, so really we can credit the first theoretical idea of black holes back to this guy. And he was a clergyman. I think that's pretty cool. Really smart guy. So it go, the idea of it goes all the way back then. Now, of course, in the 21st century, since the time of Einstein, we have this general relativity conception of what gravity is, which is the warping of this flexible fabric of space and time. And so now we can kind of get a better idea of what's going on with um, escape velocity. So what I want you to imagine here, this is, this is kind of a flawed representation. And physicists know it when they show these diagrams. But it kind of just gives you the idea. You can imagine you've got this two-dimensional representation of space-time. It's flexible. It's kind of like the surface of a mattress. You can dent it. So let's say that we have a star here. And you can see how the mass of the star creates this warp in space-time. So this is the explanation for gravity. Now let's imagine you can scrunch this down, the same mass, but make it more compact in what's called a neutron star. We're going to talk about this in a bit, but it's, it's all the mass of a star, but it's scrunched down to the size of a small city. So it's really dense. Now you can see how it's causing space-time to warp even more than just a regular star. Okay. And now we get to the most extreme gravitational phenomenon, a black hole, where you've got all the mass of the star that's scrunched down to essentially no space at all, and it creates a literal hole in space-time. So this is our modern idea of gravity, of escape velocity, this idea that the more dense something is, the more compact and massive it is, the harder it is to escape that gravity. All right, so now that you have a general idea of what black holes are, let's get into what is one of the best stories in the history of science, which is this epic of how scientists came to discover that black holes exist, or at least we're pretty darn sure that they exist. Okay, and this is a story that I broke down into three parts. The first part is what I call the white dwarf controversy. And let's go to this guy right here. Okay. So any of you who are familiar with the night sky, if you know the constellation Canis Major, the big dog, Sirius is the bright star in that constellation. That's why it's sometimes called the dog star. And any of you who subscribe to Sirius Satellite Radio, you know they have that little dog as their symbol. That's where it comes from. So Sirius actually isn't one star. It's two stars. Okay, It's this bright 
star here, Sirius A, on the left, and it's also Sirius B, which is a white dwarf. It's a companion star that's orbiting this. This turns out to be the dead exposed core of a star that died a long time ago. And so let's talk a little bit about the life cycle of a sun-like star, which is what Sirius B was. So you get this dense blob of gas that forms into a star, and over the course of billions of years, this thing will evolve so that it, it, you can see where the sun is, where it says now, about four and a half billion years old. As it ages, it gets hotter, it expands a little bit, and at some point it goes into the red giant phase. This is where it swells up. The inside of that star, now a star is powered by nuclear fusion. It takes hydrogen, slams it together, and creates helium plus a little bit of energy. This is what makes the sun shine. This is also what supports it against its own gravity, okay? Now, at some point, it runs out of fuel in the core. It goes into this red giant phase where it blows off its outer layers into what's called a planetary nebula. And I encourage you to look that up on the internet. They're absolutely beautiful. We've seen lots of these things. And what it leaves behind in the center is this squashed down, compact, dead, inert core of this star that no longer exists. And this thing isn't fusing hydrogen to helium anymore. It's just this dead, inert thing that gradually just cools off. So physicists knew about these things. They knew about white dwarfs. They observed these things. They were trying to figure out, okay, how dense are these things? We need to figure out the properties of these white dwarf stars. Okay, here's the problem. This is what kicks off this controversy. So you take something like the Earth on the left here, which is just basically a rock in space, and if you could just take, a, let's say, a teaspoon of just Earth, you get a density of about 5.5 grams per centimeter cubed. So that's not very much. You know, it's just like a spoonful of rock or dirt or something. When scientists first estimated the density of Sirius B, whoa, this is the number that they came up with. It's ridiculous, okay, 86,000 grams per cubic centimeter. This is something like 700 pounds of material in just a teaspoon. This is just absurd. And so scientists are looking at this number and they're saying, well, this is ridiculous. What's going on with these things? The main problem is how does something like that support itself against the crush of its own gravity? It should just crush down and completely disappear. And you can see why they have this problem because again, as I mentioned, a normal star like the sun resists the crush of its own gravity with the outward pressure of that nuclear fusion in its core. It's super hot, millions of degrees, all of that radiant energy pushing out against the gravity and so it remains in what's called hydrostatic equilibrium. And it's in this exquisite equilibrium for billions of years until that fuel runs out and then crunches down to white dwarf, and then what? Okay, ordinary gravity cannot, I'm sorry, ordinary pressure cannot support a white dwarf against its own gravity. So here's the problem right here. What is keeping it from just disappearing into a black hole? So uh, along comes, let me see if I can say his name, Subramanian Chandrasekhar. And thankfully, he went by the nickname Chandra, so that's what we're going to call him. So he became interested in this problem of what supports a white dwarf against its own gravity. So he had read some physics, 
And somebody had come up with this idea, this physicist named Fowler, the idea that was relatively new at the time, this is kind of in the early 1900s, that you have these quantum mechanical effects that actually support the star against its own gravity. Something called electron degeneracy pressure, uh, and really just in layman's terms, that just means that electrons don't like to be scrunched too close together. You try to push them together and like, hey man, you know, back off, and they exert pressure on each other, and that is what supplies the pressure supposedly against gravity. Now, in order to see if that actually was the case, to work through the mathematics of that, required Chandra to combine quantum mechanics with Einstein's special relativity, which no one had done yet. Turned out to be very difficult, but he actually had faith that this could be done and that it should be done, and he ground through those equations. And, okay, so here's a little visual representation of this, and he actually figured it out. Okay, and he came to England to work with some very prominent astrophysicists to work on this problem, figured it out, he published it, and what he discovered is that there was a limit. So this worked. This electron pressure would support a star against gravity, but only to a point. And that limit was about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So great. As long as a star has less mass than that, it won't disappear into some horrible, mysterious thing. Okay, so let's talk about this guy right here. This is Sir Arthur Eddington. Chandra came all the way from India to England specifically to work with him. He was not only a great astrophysicist, he was considered the astrophysicist of the time. Okay, I think he was the astronomer royal at the time. And uh, although he admired Chandra's work, he absolutely hated this idea of a star being crushed down to nothing and that the only thing that stood in the way of this was this weird quantum mechanical effect. And so this quote, various accidents may intervene to save the star, but I want more protection than that. I think there should be a law of nature to prevent a star from behaving in this absurd way. Wow, you know, really smart guy, highly respected, but this was such an unscientific attitude. And so part of the reason that I wanted to include this story in this book was to show a lot of people have this very idealized notion about scientists that they're rational, you have the lab coat on, you know, we always go where the data lead, no emotions. Well, that's not true. I mean, he clearly had an emotional reaction to this. He just philosophically hated this idea. And so there was this epic dust-up between him and Chandra, and it turns out that there were a number of prominent physicists at the time that actually were on Chandra's side. like we agree with you, we think this is what the physics says, we think we ought to pursue it, but they didn't really want to go against Eddington because he was the most powerful scientist at the time. And it was this horrible conflict, and it was so traumatizing to Chandra that he actually ended up going into a completely different uh, topic area in physics. He just, after he solved this problem, off he went. And so what this shows you, um, and this is a good place to talk about this, the four barriers to human understanding. And we see this over and over in the history of science. So these are limited perspective. You know, we're just these finite, tiny creatures on this speck of dust in the cosmos. Of course, we're going to have a limited perspective on things. Misleading emotion. And if you think scientists don't have emotions about their work, oh my goodness, you really ought to hang around with some scientists. 
It is a very emotional thing. I have seen some epic fights, I'll tell you. Intellectual inertia. So this is just this idea. Well, this is the ideas that I grew up with and I don't want to change. And then just good old pride, the lack of humility. Okay, so keep that in mind as we move along. So part two, more bodies in the stellar graveyard. So we already know about white dwarfs. This is one end that a star can come to. So what happens if you exceed this limit? Scientists knew at the time, astronomers knew that there were more massive stars in the universe. Betelgeuse. I think most of you know Betelgeuse. It's that really pretty red star in the shoulder of Orion. Well, it's about 12 times the mass of the sun. That's way beyond that Chandra limit of 1.4. So what happens to a star like this when it dies? Okay. Along comes this fellow, James Chadwick. So just around this time that people are starting to think about this problem, we have James Chadwick discovering the neutron, which is another nuclear particle besides the proton. It's got no charge. That's why it's called the neutron, as opposed to the positively charged proton. It's got about the same mass. And so there was this idea that, uh, and there's this kind of eccentric astrophysicist named Fritz Zwicky, I encourage you to look him up. He's a real oddball character. He came up with this idea, well, what if a star, when you have this white dwarf and exceeds this Chandra limit, gravity crunches it down even more, the protons and the electrons that are in there combine to form neutrons, and you basically just have a big ball of neutrons. Well, it turned out to be correct. It was a great idea. So the idea is that neutrons, like electrons, also have this resistance to being squished together, you have this neutron degeneracy pressure that just means they don't want to be too closely uh, compacted. And so that would provide the outward pressure to resist the crush of gravity. Okay, hooray. But is there a limit? Is there a limit beyond which even neutron pressure will not hold a star up? Enters this figure. And I'm sure most of you know this name, Robert Oppenheimer, who is most well known for being uh, the father of the atomic bomb, but he's actually quite well known in physics for working on this problem of uh, stellar astrophysics. Okay, so can we possibly have these neutron stars? And keep in mind at point, this is all theoretical. Nobody has seen any of these things except for white dwarf stars. So. He uh, gets together with his student, George Folkoff. Now, Chandra had to put together quantum mechanics and special relativity. In order to solve this problem, Oppenheimer and Volkov had to put together quantum mechanics, the much more difficult general relativity, which was the bigger theory of relativity, and at the time, what was the poorly understood nuclear force to try to solve this problem, my goodness. And to understand what an epic undertaking this was, you have to keep in mind at the time, they did not have supercomputers like we have now. So to grind through these horrible calculations, we can just feed it into a supercomputer. So, or, or just even MATLAB, any of you who are students who've worked on this kind of stuff, in you go, or Maple. They were grueling, they were done by hand. The only way you could do that in a human lifetime was to simplify. So you would look at the math, you'd say, okay, what parts of this can we just exclude? Can we not worry about? That there's such minute details, it's not even going to matter. And it required intuition. Now, Oppenheimer actually had quite good intuition. He seemed to know which parts of this he could just ignore. 
And so that's how he and Volkov worked, and they came up with a solution. And they found that neutron pressure could indeed support a star from collapsing in on itself, but only to a point. Three times the mass sun's, the sun's mass was the limit. Okay. Again, this is a problem. Why? Because we know that there are really massive stars out there. Now, it is known that stars do puff off a lot of their mass as they're dying, you know, either uh, through the supernova process or the last stages, you know, they're just, they're, they're ejecting their outer layers, but they would have to eject, like in the case of Betelgeuse, nine times the mass of the sun before it died in order to not exceed this limit. That doesn't seem likely. So, is there another type of body in this stellar graveyard beyond the neutron star if you have something like Betelgeuse collapsing in on itself? Okay, so to solve this problem, Oppenheimer recruits another student, Hartland Snyder. They get to work on this, and they figure it out. But here is where their faith is broken. And the faith I'm talking about is faith in the laws of physics, faith in mathematics, that when you get a result, and let's say you're pretty confident in the simplifications you've made, you're pretty confident that you work through the math correctly, and you look at the result and you go, nope, I can't believe it. And that's what happened. They looked at the result and they just said, nope, don't believe it, and I'll show you why. And in fact, most, many physicists at the time looked at that and said, nope, too weird, and I'll explain what happened. The problem was that they realized due to the extreme gravity involved in this kind of a collapse that you would see two entirely different things as this star collapsed on itself depending on where you were looking from. Okay, so a distant observer, let's say someone here on Earth, let's say you've got a powerful telescope, you just happen to point it in the direction of a star just at the moment that it's collapsing. Okay, and what is it that you see? It's that the collapse, as it's collapsing, it appears to slow down and then it just is frozen in time at some point and it just kind of hangs there. And it was for this reason that a uh, Russian astrophysicist called these things frozen stars which I think is a really poetic name. It's really cool. The problem is that according to these equations, that if you were a hypothetical observer on the surface of the same star, what you would see is that this thing would accelerate in its collapse as you're riding down on this thing, and it would disappear. Now, it was this idea that you would see two completely different things for the same event, depending on where you were looking from, that broke the faith of physicists at the time. Now, instead of saying, okay, guys, let's figure out how this works, they're just like, nope, not going to believe it. And so Oppenheimer rejected his own results. You know, and it's such a strange thing to me that somebody that brilliant who had the chops to work through the math like that would get to that point and just say, I can't accept it. And so here we are, back to these four barriers to human understanding. Now, there's an interesting twist on this. Now, Oppenheimer, ethnically Jewish, raised with the teachings of the Old Testament, had become kind of enamored with Hindu mysticism, and it had influenced him to the point that, uh, you know, his friends would talk about how, for him, there was this veil of mysticism that kind of obscured the boundary between what we can see and what we can't see, and how this influenced Oppenheimer to the point that he couldn't pursue this physics 
where the evidence was leading. And so there's this quote by his friend and colleague, Robin, who said, some may call it a lack of faith, but in my opinion, it was more a turning away from the hard, crude methods of theoretical physics into a mystical realm of broad intuition. Now, as I point out in my chapter in this book, I don't think those are two different things. Faith in the laws of physics is the hard, crude method of theoretical physics. And he simply lacked the ability, because of his worldview, to go beyond that. And so it's going to require another figure, somebody else, to pick up the baton and carry it across the finish line where Eddington and where Oppenheimer couldn't go. And so this guy, who's one of my favorite figures in black hole physics, this is John Wheeler. I really like this guy, and you can kind of tell by his picture that he's just sort of a happy, optimistic guy. Now, uh, the building that I worked in when I was at UT, uh, Robert Lee Moore Hall, on the fourth floor, they had a big auditorium. It was called the Wheeler Auditorium. It was named after him. He spent time at UT. He was a really smart guy. Uh, And so what a lot of people don't realize is that he was as instrumental in the whole nuclear program, uh, the weapons program, as Oppenheimer. He worked on the atomic and the hydrogen bombs, And so he had all of this experience having worked through this stuff. Now, the important thing is that once World War II ended, all these physicists at the time were engaged in wartime efforts. After that, he was able to focus on these kinds of problems. Now, importantly, he had access to post-war computing breakthroughs. They were able to put computers to the task of grinding through these awful calculations that Oppenheimer had done by hand. Okay, and what it showed is definitively that stars that are more massive than three times the mass of the sun theoretically, mathematically should collapse down to what we now call black holes. It means they just disappear into a hole in space. Now, so what this, what happened here is it eliminated the problem of people doubting Oppenheimer's solution because now they didn't have to worry about these simplifications. It showed that Oppenheimer had been right in what he chose to simplify. This, these, uh, you know, this, this computing showed definitively that it was correct. Well, okay, problem. Wheeler goes, nope, don't like it, can't accept it. Oh, no, it looks to be this whole Chandra Eddington thing all over again, except for one thing. Wheeler was fundamentally a different kind of guy than either Eddington or um, Oppenheimer. And he's a real optimistic guy. And I love this quote. I confess to being an optimist about things, especially about someday being able to understand how things are put together. And so it's this optimism that's going to carry him to the end here. And this quote reminded me of something that Johannes Kepler said. So famous Kepler of Kepler's planetary laws. Those laws of nature are within grasp of the human mind. God wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts. It's reminiscent of that. And of course, Kepler was very much a devoted Christian. And this optimistic idea of, yes, you can know these things. Keep going. Figure it out. Okay, so advanced computing and more importantly, a resolution to that weird paradox about you get two different observers seeing two entirely different things is what finally convinced Wheeler that this was worth pursuing, that it was probably correct. So now you remember, 
The problem is, you on Earth pointing your telescope at this collapsing star would see it slow down and collapse and then just kind of appear frozen in time, while some hypothetical person on the surface of the stars is collapsing, sees it accelerate in its collapse and disappear. How do you explain that? Well, inadvertently, this physicist named David Finkelstein figured it out. Okay, he came up with this resolution. Now, unfortunately, I could not include this description in this book. I just kind of referred to it, and then I told people to look it up. And the reason is I was already way over the word count limit for my chapter. I had to cut it short. But the main problem is that the only way to explain this without a lot of equations is to do it visually, and I couldn't do that. So uh, what I'm going to show you here is this really clever cartoon from Kip Thorne's book, Black Holes and Time Warps, which I very much encourage you to read if you have any interest in this topic, that explains how you can have two different observers seeing two different things from the same event. So what he's got here in this case are ants. So imagine that you've got ants that are walking on this surface that's kind of deformable. You know, it bends under weight. So these ants are walking across. You've got an ant on the left who's got this thing that fires spheres to the ant on the right, and each sphere has an integer number on it, and it's fired every second. So every second he's firing this, every second the ant on the right is getting a sphere with an integer and goes, aha, okay, that's minus two, minus one, zero, one, two, they go in succession like that. Now, the longer those ants remain on that surface, the more it starts to collapse under the weight of those ants. Now you start to see what happens. Even though the ant on the left is firing those spheres still every second for him, the ant on the right is receiving those spheres at longer and longer intervals because now they've got to climb out of that deformation. So it becomes more severe with time. You see how those spheres for the ant on the left are still being fired every second, but the ant on the right is getting them at longer and longer intervals until you can imagine this thing finally collapses under the weight of those ants. This is very hypothetical, and let's say that it forms a singularity. And so what happens is that last sphere is just going to hang there forever because it doesn't have enough energy to get out of that dent, but it's not going to roll back in either. This is how you can get somebody seeing a star that appears to be frozen and collapse while whoever is there at that location is going to see it collapse all the way down. Okay, this is a really clever way to explain what's going on. And so with that resolution, then physicists started to take this seriously. It's like, okay, this actually can make sense. And in fact, Wheeler was so enamored of all this, he became an ardent proponent of the idea of black holes. And in fact, he's the one who came up with the term black hole and popularized that. So I really like that story. Okay, so now we have Einstein here. All right. Now, so this is faith. This is the kind of faith that absolutely does operate in science. And uh, Einstein says it so well. The eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. The fact that it is comprehensible is a miracle. Okay, and he's right. There's no reason that an accidental universe would have to make sense to us, would have to reveal itself to us. Not every worldview says that. There are other worldviews that say we can't know things about the universe. 
but the biblical worldview does say that. Okay, and so here we refer to Psalm 19, verses one through four. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. I love that passage from scripture. It's this idea that the universe is practically calling out to us to explore it and will tell us something about its creator. But again, this is this biblical worldview that says, yes, the universe is intelligible because the force behind it is intelligent and is good and wants us to know about it. Let's summarize this part before we go on to a really cool part where we talk about the actual evidence for black holes. Okay, so we started with this epic of the physics of stars. What happens when stars die? They collapse, white dwarfs, neutron stars, and finally black holes. These are the major players that we were talking about. We talked about the four barriers to knowledge and how each of these figures to some extent embodied those barriers, the Western Christian perspective that prevailed. Now Wheeler, I forgot to mention, was not conventionally Christian. He was raised Unitarian, but he very much embodied that Western Christian optimistic sense that tells us that we can and should know something about the universe. Okay, now at this point, as exciting and interesting as this is, black holes at this point in history are still just mathematical curiosities. Nobody has seen any evidence for them. And that's important. Okay, we're going to talk about black holes revealed here because the absolute heart and soul of science is evidence, tests, observations. So Kepler said, without proper experiments, I conclude nothing. It's all well and fine to go through the math, and the mathematical part is very important. But until you have evidence, all you've got is some neat math. Okay? This is science in a nutshell, and it reminds me of Paul's admonition to us to test all things, hold fast to that which is good. And you better believe that science is based on that idea. Okay? 50 out of 52 of the architects of the scientific revolution were Christian, and they were absolutely influenced by this idea. Okay, so let's get into the meat of this. Now, Scientists at that time did not have a lot of optimism that they would be able to actually ever find these things. They could observe white dwarfs because these things were shiny and bright and they were at least the size of the Earth. But neutron stars were supposed to be the size of a city. How on Earth do you see something that small out there in the cosmos? So they pretty much figured they were never going to see these things, let alone a black hole. It is a hole in space. It is the color of space. How do you see this thing? So they figured, forget it. We're never going to see them. But as often happens in science, they discover these things by accident. So here's a neutron star. The image on the left is a real image that is the Crab Nebula. That is the nebula. That is the remnants of a star that went supernova, exploded off its outer layers. The image on the right is an artist's conception of what's at the core of this thing. So, I think it was around the 1960s that astrophysicists discovered something they called pulsars. They were getting these signals from deep space 
very, very precise signals, sometimes in this pattern of like hundreds in a second, super precise. And they were so regular in their pulses, more precise than an atomic clock, that for a fleeting moment, scientists thought, oh my goodness, have we discovered the signal of some extraterrestrial intelligence? Just for a moment, they thought that. And so just kind of as a sense of humor thing, they called these objects LGMs, little green men, which I think is kind of hilarious. But pretty quickly, they figured out, whoa, we're looking at neutron stars, these things we thought we would never see. And to help understand how it is we could see these things, you can see that this is a shiny object, and it's got these loops around it like this. These things are essentially big bar magnets in space. So even though it's a ball of neutrons, there's a crust of charged particles on these things. Okay, and what do you get when you get a moving charge? Maybe our high schoolers know you get a magnetic field. Okay, so this big mar bar magnet, okay, and you can see that if its pole is tilted with respect to the Earth, we would see that shiny spot on the pole every time it swips past as it's spinning. It's like a lighthouse. Okay, and that's why you get those regular pulsations. The only thing that can explain that is a neutron star. And I love this because for a long time they just assumed we would never be able to discover these things. They would forever be in the realm of just speculation. But they start to discover evidence of this, right? Okay, so the next thing, since they discover neutron stars, they start to think, well, maybe we might find evidence for black holes. And it turns out Cygnus X1. Cygnus the Swan, this is another constellation. What they discovered there was some mysterious X-ray source, okay? But they couldn't see it. So there appeared to be a star that they could see with the optical telescopes, and there was an X-ray source, and these things are orbiting each other. So what you're seeing there is the actual X-ray image. It's a false color image of what the X-ray emission looks like there. What on Earth could produce this? There's some invisible entity orbiting around a star producing X-rays. And what physicists think we're looking at here is you've got an ordinary star, a very hot, massive star, this is an artist's conception, that is orbiting around a black hole. Okay, this is what makes the most sense. And so what they, they've kind of pieced together the story here, which is that you had a binary star system. And in fact, at least half of the stars that you're looking at in the night sky are in binary system. The stars seem to like to be born in pairs. One of them evolved and died before the other one. When supernova collapsed down to a black hole, these things wandered close to each other in their orbit so that the black hole, the extreme gravity, is pulling the atmosphere off of this massive companion. That material, as it spirals down onto the black hole, becomes superheated by that extreme gravity, so heated that it starts to erupt in X-rays. This is the scenario that makes the most sense. It's not definitive evidence of a black hole, but it's pretty solid evidence. Well, hooray. So now, not only do we have pretty strong evidence for neutron stars, we have pretty strong evidence for black holes. This is exciting. And it just goes to show, you know, that optimism. They never thought that they would find evidence for black holes, and yet here we are. And that's just the beginning. So now you remember this. This is Sagittarius the end of the universe, that is the center of the Milky Way. And what's really cool about this 
is that uh, in the 1930s, a physicist named Carl Jansky, who was a radio astrophysicist, had set up this antenna. And so th this is just when radio astronomy is starting to get going. They're trying to figure out what radio sources out there are interfering with signals. Mostly comes from thunderstorms. But he noticed that every time Sagittarius would rise in the sky, he would get this hiss. Right on this antenna, the signal is like, what in the world? When it said, go away. Every time. And it was such a weird thing. Astrophysicists had no idea how the center of a galaxy could produce radio signals that they kind of just went, and then they've ignored it. I mean, to me, that's just like, how do you ignore something like that? But there's like, eh, it's too weird, forget it. But then along comes this guy, and I love this guy. I mean, look at his face. He just, he's kind of a character. He's a little bit of a nut. Grote Reber, he's an engineer. He's not an astrophysicist at all, but he's so interested in radio astronomy that he builds and sets up his own radio telescope in his mother's backyard. And I'm not sure if that was it, because he built other ones, but that's one of them. And so he set out to map the sky in radio emission. So here, here's one of the maps that he made. This is 2.085 megahertz, all of these sources that he could detect in the sky in radio. Okay, and so it looks kind of like one of these topographical maps. So the inner concentric circles, that's more intense radiation, and then it goes out from there. But nobody knew what this stuff was. It's just radio stuff coming from the sky. What is going on? And when astronomers started pointing their optical telescopes at some of these sources, what they saw, they looked like stars. There's just these point-like objects in the sky. I was like, what? Now, we've looked at countless stars with telescopes. None of them have ever emitted radio waves. Like, what is going on? And I'll point out here, radio is a part of the electromagnetic spectrum, just like optical light. You've got gamma rays, x-rays, visible, you know, all this stuff, all the way down to radio waves. These are very low energy waves. But what are they? So because they look like stars, but they weren't, they called them quasi-stellar, and they're radio sources, so they just shortened that down to quasars, which sounds really cool. But what they did was they pointed these optical telescopes at them, they took spectrum. They took a spectrum. Now, spectrum is what shows what elements are in an object, okay? So they think, could it be a star? Well, here is the spectrum of a star, a hot star. So what you're seeing is this kind of continuum of radiation, and those dips in there correspond to elements in the atmosphere of those stars absorbing some of that light. So you can tell, the, these are like fingerprints. You can tell what elements are in an object by looking at a spectrum like this. Here is a spectrum of a galaxy. So we know what those look like. And it's just aggregate emission from all of the billions of stars in a galaxy. They add up to look like that. Okay, here is the spectrum of a quasar. What is that thing that does not look like a star, that does not look like a galaxy? What is it? It's got all these spiky emission lines. We have no idea what this thing is. And worse, if you measure the wavelengths of those spikes, they don't correspond to any known elements on Earth. It's like we're seeing this weird thing, and it's elements we've never heard of, and for a long time, nobody could figure out what was going on until this guy came along, Martin Schmidt at Caltech, who finally realized that some of those spiky lines there were actually very ordinary hydrogen emission lines that were all shifted 
to the right by 16%. So they finally figure out, okay, here it is, those hydrogen emission lines. The punchline is that these turn out to be objects that are incredibly far away. They can tell that because the lines have been redshifted. It's kind of like a Doppler effect. Because these things are so far away and they're receding from us at so fast a rate that the light by the time it gets to us is shifted to the red part of the spectrum. Okay, that meant they were very far away and the fact like billions of light years away. And to be that far away and we can still see them means they must be incredibly bright. And in fact, scientists inferred that these things, whatever they were, these blobs in space, billions of light years away, must be like a thousand times brighter than an entire galaxy. What are these things? And they figured out that the only thing that could power something like that was not only a black hole, but a gargantuan black hole. Like a black hole the size of a solar system that weighed millions or billions of times the mass of the sun. Crazy, but it's the only thing that works. So now they start to point more sophisticated radio telescopes at these things, and this is what they saw. Now it's kind of hard to see, but you've got a dot in the middle, and then you've got what looks like a flamethrower coming out of these things. The length of those things is hundreds of thousands of light years. What you've got is a black hole that's got jets of plasma coming out, hundreds of thousands of light years. This thing is unbelievable. So here is an artist's conception of what we think a supermassive black hole looks like. And this is my area of research right here. And you've got this disk of material that's coming from this, pours down through the galaxy. And I just gave something away. These things lie in the hearts of galaxies. This material pours down and like that Cygnus X1 black hole, it gets superheated and it just blows out radiation that we can see billions of light years away. Now this was such a big deal that Martin Schmidt ended up on the cover of Time magazine. This was really incredible. So now astrophysicists start to explore the core of our own galaxy. Now remember in the 1930s, Carl Jansky detecting that radio emission from the core of our galaxy and, and the whole scientific community just went, oh, whatever. Well, now they start to look there again. Okay, it's really hard, I'll just go over here, to see through this with an optical telescope, you've got a lot of dense gas and dust that blocks the view, like a dense fog. So we have to look there with things like infrared and radio. And so this is what we see. You can see some bubbles. Those are remnants of past supernovas. Those are supernova bubbles. And some filaments and things that bright splotch right in the middle is the exact center of the Milky Way galaxy. It's very bright there. Something's going on. And when they look even more, and so here, here's a beautiful contemporary image. I think this is from the Very Large Telescope. Really imagine the name. This is a huge telescope. It's got an infrared instrument on it. This is what the core of our galaxy looks like in infrared. It's so pretty. But even more incredible is what happened when they took a series of images spanning, I think it was 14 years at the very, very core of our galaxy. Go do your preferred search engine and type in Milky Way, black hole, stars, and what you're gonna see, what this would show, this GIF, it's really cool, or GIF, I know there's people out there who care about that. <laughs> These stars 
are all orbiting something. Do you see where that cross is in the middle, that little yellow cross? That is the point around which all of these stars are kind of going like this, okay? So we have the technology to resolve individual stars that far away in the core of our galaxy and see what they're doing. They're orbiting something that is massive. We can infer from their motions that this thing is millions of solar masses. It's tiny. It's so tiny that even though we can see individual stars, we can't see what this is. And it's invisible. What does that sound like? It sounds like a black hole. And it's really too bad. So this is another of the same kind of thing. These blobs. It's such powerful evidence. And in fact, it's so powerful. I don't know how many of you follow the Nobel News, but they recently announced the physics winners for the Nobel Prize. They won for this. So there were two competing astrophysicists, one in Germany and one here, who made these observations and they won the Nobel Prize for this. And there was a third person who won for uh, theoretical work in black holes. But it's so this was such a monumental discovery that it got a Nobel Prize, just announced last week. And then I think most of you probably recognize this, that big golden cosmic donut. This is the silhouette of the black hole in the giant galaxy M87 that was imaged last year. It is so cool. This is another big piece of evidence that black holes exist. Now, the cool thing is that if we tote all this up, if we say, okay, we observe, and in my line of work, we observe these gigantic black holes to be in virtually every galaxy that we observe out there, and there are hundreds of billions of them. And within each of those galaxies, there's probably on the order of a million of these smaller black holes. That means there are potentially quintillions of black holes in the observable universe. One or quintillion ends to the universe just in the part of the universe that we can observe. It is really interesting. Now, here, this, I like this image. This is a cartoony image. This supposedly is what would happen to you if you wandered too close to the event horizon of black hole. Now, you have to get incredibly close to a black hole before something like this would happen. If you replace the sun with a black hole of the same mass, except for the loss of light, we would never know the difference. The Earth and all the other planets would just keep orbiting. You have to get super close before you would have no chance of escape. But you get too close to a smaller black hole like this, you get what's called spaghettified. Those tidal forces, that's the difference in gravity as you get closer and closer, would just rip you apart. So I am sometimes asked, what is God's plan for having these beasts in the cosmos? They just seem so highly destructive. Why are they there? Well, as I like to say, black holes are not safe, but they're good. Now, that's a reference to something. Does anybody know who that refers to? Aslan, I'm so glad that you guys know that. Most people seem to know that, that's good. Yes, they're not safe, but they're good. They do serve a purpose. They regulate the growth of galaxies. Again, this is related to the line of work that I do. They shut down star formation before it gets beyond a certain point, and that's important because galaxies are the basic building blocks of the entire cosmos. They're gigantic chemical factories, and at least one that we know of has produced intelligent life. That can't happen if you get an overgrowth of stars. Okay, so it regulates galaxy growth. Now, for me, what's important 
is that they allow us to study the universe on very large scales. The work that I did at UC San Diego observing the far, far distant past would not be possible if we didn't have quasars. I used quasar light to study deep cosmic history. So they're very useful in studying the cosmos and also uh, what I like to call they are guardians of chaos. Let's see here. Let's talk a little bit about that. Entropy. Now, most people think of entropy as a measure of disorder. It's really, in technical terms, um, a measurement of information states. But what this means is, in a universe that's winding down over time, so our universe isn't going to last forever. It'll last a long, 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 long time, assuming God doesn't shut the whole thing down at some point, which we're told he will. But naturalistically, we just expect it to go on and on, but it's going to wind down. Eventually, all you're going to have in the universe is just this sea of unusable gas and dead stars, right? Now, we live in a universe that's currently decaying, but what we have is with this increasing disorder is black holes being these harbors where they contain the vast majority, they can contain most of the entropy in the universe. It's locked up in these black holes. So you imagine a star that goes supernova. It spews out these heavy elements. Stars are chemical factories. They turn light elements into heavier elements. The elements that are in our bodies and our clothes and our jewelry all come from stellar processing. And so when these stars die, they spew gas back out into the cosmos. New stars and planets are made out of this. But most of that mass gets scrunched down into a black hole which locked up safely and it's all that energy isn't out there wreaking havoc in the universe. So this is an important process, okay? They play an important role in the universe. Not safe, but good. And for me, this part here is a, a faith strengthener. Now, ever since the Big Bang, atheists, they really don't like this idea of a universe with a beginning. It's a little too close to Genesis. That's a whole different topic. But it's really interesting. A lot of Christians don't realize that atheist scientists actually don't like the Big Bang. It's too much like Genesis 1-1. So they try to find ways around it. And one of those ideas is an oscillating universe. Well, maybe the Big Bang was just one in a series. The universe goes bang, it expands for a while, and then it crunches back down. It goes big bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch. The oscillating universe. And maybe it's been doing that forever. Well, the problem with that is with all that entropy, all that disorder in black holes, if the universe crunches back down again, it can't go back to the low entropy state that it started with. With each successive bang and crunch, the universe would get more and more and more disordered until you would get maximum entropy, which is essentially the heat death of the universe, and there would be an end to that. So if this had already been going on forever, we would already be there. So for me, this just reinforces the idea that you cannot get around the beginning for the universe. All right. Okay, now, as I'm reading Kip Thorne's book, because it's just a wonderful history of all this discovery, and with that, you know, that donut image, when that came out, I was so excited, I'm on social media and I'm talking about it, and these people are coming to me and saying, fake, fake, it's not real, black holes don't exist. And I'm like, what? I start talking, well, what about this evidence and this evidence and the math? And they're like, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And they were so resistant to this. It's like, who doesn't believe in black holes now? It's so weird. And it was so strange that when I'm talking to these people, they were throwing the exact same obstacles 
in front of me that atheists throw in front of me when I'm talking about God. And it's like, this is so weird. They're just, they're, they don't like this idea of black, who, who cares? Like, what would it matter to you if black holes exist? And I realized it's this desire that people have for the safe, the familiar, what you can see, what you can touch, right? Things that are just big and weird and invisible really seem to bother some people. But this whole black hole physics saga has told us that we can't think of the universe in those limited terms, the safe, the familiar, what we can see, what we can touch. It's just like God. You know, I thought, God, black holes, you know, there's a similarity there. Not safe, but good, right? Invisible, powerful. We can't see him directly, but we know he's there because of the effect that he has on other things. And I thought about, you know, the whole weight of evidence that we have for God. Like we have this whole chain of evidence for black holes. Well, the same thing with God. We have all of these evidences, all of these arguments that point very strongly in the direction of God, just like we have all of the math, all of these observations that point us towards black holes. And at this point, you know, when I throw stuff like this at people, and they say, well, you know, if God really wanted me to believe in him, why didn't he just make himself obvious? You know, why didn't he make it impossible not to believe? I get asked that all the time on Twitter. And honestly, it's not an unreasonable question if you've had no biblical teaching at all. But once you start to read the Bible, you realize that there is a very good reason for God's hiddenness, just like there's an important reason to hide black holes, why they're so remote and invisible. Now, for God, his full glory is too dangerous for us to see. And we can see that in stories in the Bible, for instance, with Moses. And he tells them, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. It requires a safe distance. And you, you see these figures in the Bible, the ones who did actually have close encounters with God, like Isaiah and Moses and Samson. All of these people were completely transformed by being exposed to God, almost full force like that, right? So, in essence, that would remove our free will. That if we were to be exposed to God full force, we would have no choice but to believe. Now, why is that a problem? That is a problem because how would we know that we love God? How would we know that we chose God because we love him and because we want to obey him and not just because he's so powerful that we're overwhelmed, that we would follow him, that the way that you know an entourage would follow somebody who's incredibly rich and powerful, right? So this is important. It's for free will and it's for love. And God reveals himself just enough to protect us, but to keep our free will intact and to know the reason that we chose him. And so I saw this similarity between black holes, invisible, powerful, but safely removed from us. We'll never get close enough to a black hole to be destroyed by it, okay? And in this existence, we don't come close enough to God to be completely overwhelmed by him at a safe distance, preserving the free will. But we have so much evidence for black holes and we have so much evidence for God that really it's no longer like that leap of faith that Kierkegaard talked about. You know, in his time, they didn't have all of these arguments and these evidences. They had to make that leap of faith. I choose to believe. Well, now it's more just like a little hop of faith. You know, it's barely there. And I had someone on Twitter once ask me, what would it take for you to not believe anymore, to change your mind about your Christian faith. And I said, honestly, I would have to know less than I know now 
in order to disbelieve because there's nothing that I can conceive of that would overwhelm that evidence that I have. And so I just, I was really struck by that similarity between people who doubted the existence of black holes, could ignore all of that evidence, and the way that atheists would frequently throw up these barriers to believing in God. They were so similar. So let's go to the final summary here. Science, what I want you to take away from this is that science is a messy human endeavor. It's such a neat story, this black hole saga, but you can see scientists aren't always completely rational. They'll throw up their hands and say, forget it, I'm out, I don't like this. But as a whole, you've got this scientific method that carries the whole body of human knowledge along, and it seems to work pretty well. You've got these primordial barriers to knowledge that are overcome by really sticking to what I call an intellectual form of morality, which is the scientific method. Okay, we've got black holes, this whole saga of how we know they exist now. They're not safe, but they're good. They serve a purpose. And then I wanted to tie this in with God's hiddenness and why he hides his face from us. And I, I hope that has kind of answered some questions and given you stuff to think about. I do recommend that you get this book and also Kip Thorne's book, Black Holes and Time Warps. And uh, that's the end of my talk and I'm quite happy to take any questions. We thank you for taking the time to tune in and we hope you've been blessed and encouraged by this broadcast. Don't forget to check out the link to the video version as well to see the many helpful visual, graphics, and slides that accompany Sarah's presentation. This has been a special joint broadcast of Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile, podcast productions of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on our book, The Story of the Cosmos, How the Heavens Declare the Glory of God, check out thestoryofthecosmos.com. That's altogether no spacing, thestoryofthecosmos.com. For more information about Sarah's work, you can visit her website at sarahsalviander.com. And for more information on apologetics, cults, world religions, and other non-Christian worldviews and ideologies, be sure to visit our website at watchman.org. That's watchman with an A dot O-R-G. All of these links can be found in the description notes to this episode. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm staff apologist Daniel Ray.